Hey guys, this is Slow Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and I wanted to let you guys know about the first Mises event of 2024. On February 17th, we will be returning to beautiful Tampa, Florida for an event dedicated to inflation, causes, consequences, and the cure. While the government tries to hide the consequences of inflation in their official statistics, Americans see and feel it every time they visit the grocery store. The state and its media lapdogs try to blame inflation on corporate greed, but the true source of inflation is the Federal Reserve and the banking system. We're going to be tackling this issue with a great lineup of speakers, including Joseph Salerno, Patrick Newman, and our new Mises president, the great Tom DeLorenzo. Uh, we have a special code for Radio Rothbard viewers for a 15% discount. That's uh, Rothbard24. And you can uh, find more about this event at Mises.org slash Tampa 2024. Hey, guys, this is The Bitch with Radio Rothbard, and we've got another great offer for Radio Rothbard listeners. We have a free book that we want to send directly to your doorstep. If you are a fan of this show, you have no doubt heard us discuss Murray Rothbard's classic Anatomy of the State his dive into the mechanics of the state as we know it, what the state fears, what its greatest threats are. It is one of the all-time best Rothbard reads, a personal favorite of both myself and Ryan. You can get your free copy as a Radio Rothbard listener by visiting Mises.org slash RothPodFree. That's R-O-T-H-P-O-D free. You can also find the link in our show notes. Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin. I'm executive editor at the Mises Institute. And with me, of course, is Tho Bishop. And uh, we're going to talk this week about some things that states can do to a hamstring and hamper federal power going into the new year. In a lot of states, of course, the state legislatures begin their sessions in uh, the first couple of weeks of January. For the, the states that have uh, proper legislatures that only meet a few months a year, or maybe even every other year, uh, that's going to be happening now. Um, not like those awful states like California and New York that have year-long year legislative sessions. Um, but in, in, in a lot of states, now is the time for all you le state legislators thinking out there to put together some good legislation. So Tho and I are going to try and give you some ideas here today. Um, but before, yeah. we, before we get going on that, you want to talk about the Texas, Texas thing a little bit, though? I mean, this is a state issue, I suppose. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I, I've gotten some, some good feedback from state legislators out there that are Radio Rothbard fans. That's always great to to hear from. And yeah, one of the big stories out there, um, you know, there's still a process that goes on to make sure that it actually gets on the ballot, you know, legally. Uh, but it is the Texas naturalist movement that has been building steam for quite a while. There was some polling after the 2020 election that showed um, particular support for secession, especially among Republicans um, throughout the Southeast and parts of the uh, kind of North Midwest, and this has helped propel this movement, which uh, collected over almost a hundred thousand signatures 
with the goal of having the question of Texas secession being put on the Republican primary ballot next year. Um, there are, of course, as you might suspect, some detractors from that. The Speaker of the House in Texas is particularly awful. Um, the state party apparatus is, is actually really pretty good um, relative to other state parties out there. There's been a lot of support amongst sort of the grassroots of Texas Republicans to try to get this issue to the table. Um, so the signatures have been filed. There's still a process to kind of you have to you have to go through the signatures and make sure you don't have Mickey Mouse signing on things. And you know once the actual legal numbers are there, um, then it is quite possible that you're going to have millions of Texas Republicans having the opportunity to vote on whether or not Texas should continue to be a state. Now this is a non-binding referendum, right? There's no um, automatic you know enforcement mechanism to it. You know we're not going to immediately have 49 states and create all sorts of interesting issues that would come with that with the 2024 election and the like. Um, it will, of course, be very interesting to see if the, the, uh, the secession uh, strength is there, if polls show that the politician of their choice is doing much better in 2024. Um, but just the fact that we might actually have on the table the ability for voters to actively question the value of continuing to be a part of this federal government, um, I think is a very interesting story and a, uh, a very important one for the discourse going into not just 2024, but whatever might come afterwards, as it helps normalize a topic that is, of course, near and dear to your heart as the author of Breaking Away, a great book out there for anyone that hasn't gotten their copy. You can get a discount code for Christmas using Rothpod as a coupon code at the Mises Bookstore. Got to get that, that uh, commercial in there. Um, but you know, again, regardless of the outcome here, the fact that this is actually on, it has the potential of being on the ballot, being a part of the, the political narrative uh, for 2024, just as a shot across the bow, um, I think these are the sort of moves that hopefully we'll see coming more and more from states, um, given the complete dysfunction and breakdown of you know, Americans' quality of life thanks to the parasitic federal government. Yeah, I don't see a real downside to running this sort of thing and forcing uh, the the party apparatchiks to tolerate it and let the vote take place. I think it gives a better idea of how the party rank and file feel about it. Well, I don't know. Do the sort of people who vote this thing, do they count as the rank and file? But at least the sorts of people who choose the candidates at the primary level and a lot of the state caucuses and the state parties and are at the state conventions and that sort of thing. These these are the people who are really paying attention. They're often a lot of this, a lot of the time the people who send in funding. Um, and so why not have people uh, have some record, some public record of how many people support the idea? Now, I, I think Texas is the place to start. Texas is probably the place that has the most local nationalism, if you will. Um, a lot of other states, there's just not much going on at all in terms of separatism. But uh, and that, that includes most of the South would be my guess. I, Texas is a little bit different. And, and part of that is because Texas is so huge. And so it could so obviously be its own functioning uh, polity from day one. I mean, with such with 25 million people, with a huge economy, with coastline, with plenty of oil and gas, all that sort of stuff. And uh, so just on practical level, there's, there's not even really any good objections to Texas being its own country. Um, except just regular old brute force from Washington saying, hey, we want your tax revenue and you're not allowed to leave. Uh, so, yeah, why not do it? I mean, I know that the people who lead the party hate this sort of thing. 
Um, and the fact that they hate it makes me like it more. Uh, and I think the left figured out a long time that a lot of these symbolic sorts of votes can serve a good purpose. Um, it, it puts you on the map. It lets people know that this is something that isn't going away, that you can't ignore. And then if it ever gets to the point where it's it appears actually on ballots uh, for the general population, that can be very useful as well. For example, look at how many times they ran in many states uh, marijuana legalization uh, ballot issues that failed. Uh, and it was only after several tries in states like Colorado that it finally passed. And then the same was used in a variety of other states as well. And then eventually it just uh, people got used to it and it started to get uh, more acceptance. And really, I mean, let's face it, uh, the pro marijuana side won. Um, it's <laughs> most states now have at least medicinal marijuana and over 20 states have it for recreational. I mean, this is clearly a winning strategy that can work. Uh, it's a grassroots strategy. And, and of course the party leaders tend to hate it. Um, so why not go ahead and try it? And yeah, so I think the fact that it isn't binding, isn't really a criticism of it. Um, it, uh, I would very, be very curious to see how it turns out. So Sure. This, of course, would not qualify as legislation, uh, and as you know, it wouldn't actually change the legal landscape much, but it changes the political landscape going forward. And this is, you have to be in for it for uh, something more than a two-year cycle uh, if you're hoping to win right. this kind of game. And I think the people who are running this probably have some sense of that. And, and of course, the gamble here is that if it's on the ballot, I think it's completely wiped out in a, a Republican referendum, right? If it's, if it's 2080... Um, then that probably would not be a, a positive step for the, the Texas nationalist uh, movement. And that's one of the actually arguments that the group has made is that, you know, why are you guys trying to, you know, against politicians trying to, to prevent this from being considered at all? It's like, look, you know, if, if this thing fails as spectacularly as you guys would like us to believe, right, if, if this is such an outlandish idea, an irresponsible idea, whatever dismissive phrase that you want – if, if that is true, then the voters can show that, in which case we're going to have to take a big step back and reconsider our place with things. Now, what will be interesting is that even if it doesn't pass, but if it's you know, 40, 60, if, if you have a, a large percentage of, of Texans, um, Texas Republicans, um, that are open to this idea, then, then that will, I think, go a long way, even without success, of helping normalize this process. You mentioned uh, marijuana referendums. You know, it's worth reminding uh, listeners that it was seven years between gay marriage being shut down, uh, you know, losing a California statewide referendum in 2008, um, between that and the Oberfolk decision, right? And and you know that that referendum, uh, the the California referendum on gay marriage, it it, it failed, you know, fairly fairly you know by limited narratives margins there um obviously that it continued the conversation in other states you had other states kind of pursuing that and then all of a seven years seven years later you had this massive change within a you know historical institution with the united states as a, you know, part of a supreme court decision now a feeling that the supreme court is never going to be nearly as as open to the question of secession as they are on certain progressive cultural issues there but it just shows how quickly this landscape can can start and how even a a ballot referendum that fails does not necessarily mean the end or the death of a political cause 
Yeah, and there is a, a a point to be made in terms of yes, if you if you bring forth a issue for the ballot and it fails horribly and repeatedly, that doesn't help you much. Um, and so there is that issue to be aware of, and, and that happened in Colorado with anti-abortion issues, where there was a group here that kept running these anti-abortion pieces of legislation that would, for example, uh, legally define an unborn child as a legal person and that sort of stuff. But those failed miserably. Um, and all they did end up doing was giving uh, politicians in the legislature confidence, knowing that they could pass pro-abortion legislation without being punished uh, at the ballot box, at least not at the statewide level. So there can be a downside to that. But if you so if you as you say if you really think it would fail miserably then uh, yeah the party leaders in the GOP should want uh, to run this uh, but they they seem to uh, be concerned that it might actually do reasonably well so that's just an interesting sign uh, right there so yeah I hope uh, I hope they determine that it'll be worth it to do it and that they uh, yeah get at least forty percent maybe heck maybe even thirty five percent you can say more than a third wants to, want to secede that's not terrible headlines. Um, I mean, yeah, if I saw a big giant national poll that said 30% of Americans want uh, think that everybody has the right to secede, I think that would probably be good. I think we're currently at about a quarter the last time I saw a poll on that. Um, the Zogby polls have actually been fairly uh, positive if you're pro-secession uh, <laughs> in recent years. Uh, so it's uh, it's not as much of a fringe idea as its opponents would, would have you believe. But uh, yeah, let's see how that goes in Texas. Uh, well, let's look at some actual legislation then um, that uh, here's some ideas for you legislators. Uh, let's just start off with uh, the, the order that uh, they're written here. Uh, defend the Guard legislation. Now, we've, we've brought this up a little bit in the past. This, this could take a variety of different forms, but the general premise is to prevent each state's National Guard from being shipped off to foreign countries just because the president uh, has unilaterally decided that the United States is at war with country X. And the way it's been happening in the last 20, 30 years is that the president decides, hey, I don't like that foreign country or some foreign leader, or whatever. I don't even really have to consult Congress. I just decide uh, I'm going to send troops uh, to, uh, to fight this war. And the next thing you know, you're in the National Guard. Uh, you're a dog groomer, and uh, you got, you've got a National Guard obligation, and they ship you off uh, to the Middle East for a few months or more. And uh, you just hope that uh, your mortgage is, is all working out by the time you get back. So uh, that's a terrible idea, um, and really betrayal of what the National Guard is supposed to be about. And so it's nice to see that there's some legislation uh, in those terms. now. Though so there, there are some variations on this, though, if I remember correctly, and there's different states that have actually been running uh, this legislation. I, I think I saw that Maine was doing it, and I think one of the original was a uh, legislator named McGeehan out of West Virginia. And there have been some other states as well. Um, do, you, do you remember where some of these other states are? Uh, yeah, there, there's been significant movement in states like Arizona. Um, I know Florida has had um, it is on pass in Florida, but there has been um, Anthony Sabatini, who was a very um, firebrand state rep. Um, even after he left the state house, 
um, his that, that that baton continued to be passed afterwards, and that's always very important because you know sometimes you'll have a very good state legislator that is motivated by some of these issues, and whenever they leave office in Florida, we have term limits and the like. Um, it kind of dies with them. Uh, but this is one of those issues that you see a lot of overlap with um, a lot of like uh, America First sort of MAGA style Republicans have been leaning into this sort of legislation. Um, uh, Wendy Rogers, who is one of the kind of like Queen MAGA. Yeah, queen of, of, of the Trump delegation within Arizona um, as a state senator there. Um, she's been one of the leading advocates within that state. And so this is one of those issues where you see a lot of getting that, that America first MAGA sort of crowd out there um, willing to introduce at the state level. Um, it is something that has a lot of grassroots uh, organization with both our, our friends, the, the Libertarian Mises Caucus, Republican Liberty uh, uh, conferences, caucuses out there that are kind of the, the remnant of the Ron Paul guard as an organizational entity within the Republican Party. Um, so this is one of those issues that you you see um, really nationwide state level organization um, supporting. And you know, the, that is, you know, it, it's it, given the uh, continual, the, the, the concerns, particularly with the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict in particular that, that continues to um, motivate uh republicans in dc and elsewhere of of not giving up you know non-interventionist principles and then some of the 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 gains that have been made there this is one of those ways the state legislator uh, in the state legislature where you see republicans being able to kind of tie in national issues kind of national skepticism of foreign policy attached to their, their state national guards in a way that's relevant to the state legislative level. So this is one of the you know, there's, there's perhaps few issues that have, have been able to to really take on a life of its own, quite like defend the guard in recent years. And the actual form of the legislation, uh, from what I've seen, is usually a prohibition on sending national guards, national guard troops outside the U.S. unless Congress has formally declared war on. State X. Uh, now there are other variations on this that you could do. You could go back to how the legislation of the National Guard was originally written, um, and re the National Guard really only started existing in its in something resembling its current form after 1903. Before then, it was simply state militias. Uh, it's still technically the state militia, but it's been brought under the Pentagon. So the Pentagon basically has a say in almost everything now. The Guard does, and then in the 80s. Uh, thanks to anti-communist uh, uh, members of Congress, they removed the state veto because up until that time, state governors often had a veto on troops being sent overseas. And this came this came to a head in the uh, the 80s when they were trying to send National Guardsmen uh, to help dictators in Central America. And so some governors tried to prevent that from happening. And then all these quote unquote patriotic members of Congress decided to shred federalism a little bit more by removing that um, veto that state governors had on uh, where members of uh, their National Guardsmen were, uh, National Guards were sent. And, and that, of course, you might remember uh, if you uh, were at risk of being sent to Vietnam. Uh, if you're in that age group, or maybe your your father uh, encountered this issue where he could join the National Guard uh, and avoid being sent uh, to kill and burn Vietnamese villages 
uh, in Southeast Asia. And I've met quite a few men who have done that, often liberty-loving men who uh, didn't want to kill for the regime. So they just joined their state's National Guard. Now, the smarter guys were able to do that early on in the conflict. The, the dumber ones, like George W. Bush, uh, only tried to join later, and they needed their dads to pull some strings to get them in the National Guard. Uh, to avoid military service. But that was the status quo back then, was that the Guard was not sent overseas to fight in these international wars. Uh, so you could introduce legislation that would try and move uh, these National Guard uh, laws back in the direction of where they were um, in the past when they were better. Uh, but uh, you would probably meet insane amounts of opposition from the Pentagon. In fact, all versions of these bills meet huge opposition from the Pentagon. They send generals to your office as a state legislator to, to threaten you. They tell the state that we'll withdraw all funds from your state and it'll cost you jobs and we'll badmouth you every chance we get. The military basically declares itself the enemy of your state um, if uh, you threaten to uh, uh, take control of the Guard and not let the Pentagon and the White House decide where your local troops are sent. But that is something you can do. Um, as a legislator, and it has been tried in a variety of states, and it, it often does uh, get up for committee, it gets voted upon. Uh, it failed in Wyoming recently because even though you'd think Wyomingites uh, who correctly hated uh, Liz Cheney on that um, and, and threw her out, nevertheless can't, can't bring themselves to assert uh, any real federalism in opposition to federal power on this issue. So. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done there, but it's certainly the sort of legislation that we want to continue to see brought up in states year after year. Um, now, with the next issue, states holding gold on balance sheets. Now, this I don't know a whole lot of. I know states have uh, taken some steps to make uh, precious metals legal tender in some places and to really or uh, and to reduce taxes on sales and make it function as actual money. Um, but what's what's the story here with the balance sheets, though? It was interesting. If you look at kind of the, the statutes that different states have on what they can invest any surplus funds in, you know, as part of their investments uh, that might hold for you know pension funds or thing, or rain, the rainy day fund and things like that. Um, I know here in Florida, for example, uh, you know one of the one of the ways this, these state investment funds have been utilized in recent years have been dealing with you know woke businesses and BlackRock and things like that, right? So you've had different states. I think West Virginia was the first one to do so um, with their state treasurer of uh, uh, divesting any of their state-held assets from, say, like BlackRock or you know DEI funds and the like. Uh, but if you look at the statutes and what they're allowed to invest in, um, states like Florida, for example, um, you can invest in government bonds. You can invest in certain types of stock. Um, you can invest in Israeli debt. Uh, one of the few, except one of the few foreign uh, investments that you can make using state funds. Uh, there's some, some political aspects that go into that, um, but gold is not one of those. And so, if we look at a state like Texas, as we mentioned earlier, you know that's a, that's an example of a state that's been the most proactive in um, you know they've they've created a gold depository. And the like, and you you could theoretically you know, envision a situation where you, if you have a state like Arkansas, for example, that legalizes the ability to invest in gold as an asset, you know, having that as an inflation hedge, you know, rather than investing in say government securities and the like, um, you know, even if they do not themselves have the custodial capacity as a state yet to actually have a secure facility for physical gold holdings, 
you know, why can't they contract out with a state like Texas that has the facilities already in line? And so you could vary you know, if, if there is interest among state legislators concerned within this inflationary environment, concerned you know, with, with uh, this heightened awareness of concerns about uh, you know, monetary policy, uh, decreasing demand for U.S. Treasuries and the like. You know, it would be very interesting if you start seeing multiple states um, contracting with a state like Texas to, you know, you know you're not, you know, I would never expect for all of their holdings, you know, all their savings to be placed in gold, but start accumulating those as simply an additional aspect of the larger portfolio, which would not only, I think, make economic sense within some of the, the headwinds out there, but that itself would be a very big shot across the bow. That'd be a very big statement piece against kind of a no confidence vote on the direction of the U.S. Treasury. And so that leads a very interesting dynamic, you know, if we tie this back into the state secession uh, issue, is that if Texas were to become an independent state, it would immediately have more gold on hand than uh, Canada. So another point in favor there of, of Texas statehood. Um, but I, I think these are some of the conversations that I've, I've had conversations with, with a variety of state legislators who are very interested in trying to apply, um, you know, their concerns about the Fed and monetary policy into actionable legislation at the state level. Uh, this, I think, is, 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 is an important one, one that hasn't really gotten tr traction yet, I think, out there, um, but one that I, I would like to see more states start looking at as, a, uh, as, as an aspect of kind of taking a more responsible look at you know, what the next you know, decade or so uh, might be bringing. And so for any of those, and of course, you often hear from some of the uh, the more newcomer libertarians uh, <laughs> who uh, they, they think in uh, certain sorts of terms about how well, right, you can't do anything that actually increases either state or federal power. In this case, it's, it's still a slam dunk because what you're doing is opening up the available number of investments that can be made as a property owner in these cases. Um, or in terms of, well, I guess when we're talking about states doing these sorts of investments also, or state agencies, it also enables more private firms than to participate just in that economy as well. So, I mean, I just don't see like a problem here with expanding state regulation. If anything, it seems that it pulls back uh, state regulation. Um, now, looking at the next issue here, Let's look at the ban on CBDCs, which should be a slam dunk too, um, where you're preventing a, a, a government bank, uh, the central bank, from uh, forcing the use of CBDCs in your jurisdiction. Um, and this, of course, CBDCs, are, the central bank digital currencies, are among the greatest threats to human liberty that we see out there uh, right now. And of course, the central bank would love nothing more than uh, to make it so that everybody has to use these uh, so that the central bank can can monitor every dollar you spend, um, can prevent all bank runs uh, by making it so that dollars can never actually leave the banking system and go into private hands. Um, and so it's quite remarkable how far that's already come. They, of course, always keep saying, oh, well, we're, we're just researching it. We're, we're not going to actually do it. Just like they used to say about uh, vaccine requirements uh, to, <laughs> to go places uh, or to workplaces. Um, this is something that uh, certainly they would love to have. And uh, it would seem that by banning its use 
within the state is is a nice blow that you can strike against the central bank and making it clear that there's real political opposition there. Yes, and uh, Florida was, I believe, the first state to to do this. Um, this was part of you know, Governor DeSantis's kind of shadow campaign uh, last legislature on really trying to hit some uh, so some national relevant issues uh, within kind of a state agenda. Um, but but a, a good thing, I think. Um, and it has been uh, growing in appeal. Uh, North Carolina has passed similar uh, laws. I believe Iowa has done the same. And so this has become, you know, with you know, what I think one of the positive aspects of the current, uh, you know, one of the only positive dynamics of the current political conversations out there is how mainstream the risk of CBDCs have become. You know, it's something that, you know, now it's, it's, it's one of the, the go-to, you know, boogeyman headlines that Fox News will run with on occasion. Um, so I think at the very least, we've kind of won the battle from a, a propaganda standpoint of Americans recognizing that while, you know, they, they might not pay that much attention to the Fed or monetary policy or the question of, you know, what is money at a, a very basic level, they recognize that central bank digital currencies are a very specific and sinister tool as part of these this you know, broader you know, world economic forum globalist you know sort of agenda there, and so that's a step in the right direction, and this also goes to and this kind of uh, mirror goes into the, the previous topic is you know how some of these you know the, the the role of say your your state treasurer or state chief financial officer or you know some of these tools that the states have dealing with. Uh, you know, financial services, um, dealing with investments, dealing with laws on money and the like. Um, some of these things that you know we don't often kind of think of them as as sexy positions, um, but these are where a lot of kind of the rubber meets the road in dictating how states operate and the like. And so whether it is again taking a more activist approach in terms of the investment of funds, whether it is um, you know, trying to create bulwarks within the state level about the imposition of central bank digital currencies. And this is one of those issues that has broken through um, state governments where it's a lot easier to be a lot more um, bold and, I mean, let's put it you know, bluntly, useful on pro-liberty legislation. This is something that, that has actually made it its way to D.C. as well, um, where Tom Emmer, who is not a particularly good congressman from a, a liberty perspective by any means, um, you know, he's a, you know, a, 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 the whip for the Republican side, someone who shortly had, I think, a three, three hour long span of, you know, Speaker of the House dreams during that whole uh, theater a few, a, a month or so ago. Um, he's actually been the co-sponsor or the sponsor of this at the federal level. So again, this is the example of you know, one of the few issues that we're going to talk about that is not only restrained to state-level conversations, but has actually been able to break through to the, the federal mainstream, um, which again, I think goes to the political potency that the risk of CBDCs have has had um, within this broader political discourse. Let's see. So, yeah, it would. Oh, by the way, it says here that South Dakota um, adopted some legislation banning CBDCs as well. And what was an interesting kink to that piece of legislation was that they were rewriting legislation that had been in the works that would allow uh, central bank digital currencies 
but would disallow anything like Bitcoin or mm-hmm. private cryptocurrencies. So it was a it was <laughs> it was a two shot on the on the in by the the people who favor tyranny basically try to say here uh, the only digital currency you can use is the government controlled stuff and so fortunately they picked up on that there and uh, have taken steps to uh, do the reverse and prohibit CBDCs while allowing private crypto um, which is of course the way it should be um, next is States can adopt legislation to require banks to notify customers if the IRS investigates their activities. Now, this has been getting worse for decades in terms of your bank basically spying on you. Um, the feds have have required this. Banks don't like to mention it because it makes their customers annoyed. Um, and in the 90s, probably one of the biggest gains was uh, the Know Your Customer legislation. Uh, which is in the mid-90s and which essentially created a lot of this new wave of legislation for the last 25 years about how, well, if you do this transaction or that transaction, your bank has to report you to the federal government. Um, And of course, there was some of that even before that. And then as you can imagine, that accelerated far more after uh, 9-11 and 2001 and has really only been getting worse since then. Um, but now we're hearing more and more about how the IRS is going to, uh, investigate all your Venmo, uh, purchases or any money that you have coming in through Venmo. Of course, the Pentagon loses a few trillion dollars and, and, uh, fails multiple audits in a row, has no idea where its money is, uh, wastes it, who knows where, but if you receive a few hundred bucks for, for mowing a lawn, um, through your Venmo account, you better better report to the IRS or you'll be investigated. So this just seems to be a growing trend. And uh, it says here that uh, Florida had already done this for Florida chartered banks. So how yeah, how does that play out? Yeah, so this is something I have to give uh, kudos to uh, Jimmy Patronus, who's our, our uh, chief financial officer, um, who, again, is one of those people that have, have kind of utilizing the role of you know, that position in a way uh, a lot more creatively than many have in the past. And so what um, legislation that he he helped drive with the state legislature that, that did pass, um, it was on the heels of, you know, the, the massive expansion, the F- IRS powers. And basically, if you are a bank chartered in Florida, and if you have any, uh, if the IRS or any federal agency goes to the bank trying to get information about their clients, um, which we've seen as an issue massively expand in recent years. We saw this play out in a big, big way um, after the January 6th protests where Bank of America were, was going to the feds and giving customer information without even being solicited for. It's like, oh, here, hey, hey, friends, here, you, you might want to check these uh, these people that were using their credit cards uh, around the Capitol on January 6th. You know, go, go vet those folks. Um, you know, we've seen, you know, a topic that we've hit on a number of times on Radio Rothbard, right? This, this weaponization of the dollar, the weaponization of money and banking um, this as the next frontier of authoritarian governance. Um, here you actually have a, uh, a piece of state legislation where, and I, I believe that the, the Florida laws only apply to Florida chartered banks, not not other banks. So that's that that also kind of creates a dynamic of kind of helping breed more federalism in the financial system, right? So if if, there, if you have additional security protections that come from going to a Florida chartered bank uh, as opposed to a nationally chartered bank, then that could actually, that could help 
spur uh, uh, customer behavior in a way that could be beneficial as well. But basically, it creates a dynamic where, again, if you are a customer of these banks and the IRS is kind of snooping around, then you know it will alert you. They, the bank has an obligation to alert you that the IRS is doing this. Um, additionally, the, the CFO office here has actually created a um, a fund for sort of uh, public defenders, so that if you are, you know, particularly if, if your Venmo is being audited or things like that, and you can't afford you can't afford a, a very powerful sort of uh, a tax attorney or the like, um, they actually have a program that will help you um, deal with the IRS if they are you know snooping around things and the like. And so again, you know, for one, this is important from the state perspective of recognizing that the IRS, that you know, the, the federal DC are, are not your friends, right? This is not just good old Uncle Sam making sure that you pay your civil fair share as a good citizen should, um, but rather you know, it starts from a position of recognizing it as the aggressor, recognizing it as an antagonizing force, and then trying to create some protection, some customer protections at the state level um, that can very least alert you, bring more transparency to the process so they cannot do this uh, without your your knowledge of it. Now, we'll see how this plays out over time. The effectiveness of it, right? You know, that's that's always a valid. You know, it, it, when we see government action, we kind of uh, you know, having a, a nice piece of legislation is secondary from it being enforced in practice and the like. Um, but I think this is another sort of dynamic where, again, having states operate from the perspective of suspicion of the motivations of the feds, and then actively utilizing the resources they the state has to create protections and to anything that creates tension between that, you know, public private relationship that has become far too sinister. Um, you know, whether it is on the financial side, whether it is on the big pharma side, um, like our conversation last week with Dr. Gilbert Burdine and some of the state driven, um, legislation, uh, state driven lawsuits over big pharma and the like. I think this, this is the sort of legislation that I think is, is very meaningful in terms of kind of embracing a, a you know, soft secession, soft decentralization perspective, where it just it, it's baked within the kind of the the framework of these state laws and regulations, a a healthy dose of skepticism and hostility to what DC is doing, not simply you know being a a willing partner, being an enthusiastic um, you know vassal state to DC, but rather taking their their role of uh, kind of state sovereignty a lot more seriously. Well, yeah, I mean, I think since the New Deal, um, states have functioned more and more as basically provinces of the federal government is, and have really not shown any concern with protecting their own citizens against these encroachments from the federal government and have helped federal agents uh, generally prosecute and persecute their own citizens. Um, and that brings us to this final issue, which is just nullification in general. Um, now, some people who think about this all day, they they get into, they get really worked up about, uh, are we talking about uh, actually attempting to simply overthrow rules? They've got very specific uh, definitions for what nullification means. Uh, they, they take it very little, literally in many cases in terms of 1798's uh, nullification doctrine uh, that that Madison and Jefferson came up with, where the states would combine to actually overthrow federal legislation. I don't think you can do that at this point, um, unless you get a bunch of states together. Uh, but when we say nullification, we simply mean states refusing, either refusing to aid any sorts of federal agents 
in the arrest, prosecution, um, or uh, observation of citizens within a state that run afoul of federal law, um, or it's just a situation where uh, the state simply refuses to recognize uh, federal law as valid in this particular case and, and may perhaps contrary uh, to state law. Um, this perhaps applies then to uh, marijuana laws within many states. Uh, Colorado probably uh, had among the strongest of that early on, basically writing into the Constitution that no state agent uh, or, legis or uh, legislator or uh, law enforcement officer could, could assist the federal government with uh, their own prohibition laws against marijuana. And uh, so that's proven uh, incredibly effective. It's really actually helped to illustrate how federal agencies can't do a whole lot with a, without assistance from uh, state agencies, because even though uh, the feds have tons of FBI agents, they're constantly trying to arm more heavily their own federal agents, whether it's IRS agents, Postal Service people, ATF, you name it, they're always trying to give those people more guns and more ammunition, but uh, they still rely heavily on the sheriff, the local sheriff, lo local police forces, the state patrol to round up people for the feds and uh, put them in federal jails, uh, or rather just put them in the local jails so they could be sent to uh, federal court and then go to a federal uh, federal prison. Uh, this all requires a lot of involvement from the state in many cases. And so nullification could uh, be effectively used through that means. And I think you you see that then in the war on drugs. And, and while Republicans are generally much more spineless on the issue, uh, they have shown some spine on that with uh, enforcing federal uh, laws against uh, guns in Missouri especially where there's been some especially strong legislation there saying that uh, state agents will not uh, help enforce federal gun control laws. And so there is some that can be done there, but it's very, actually, it's very hard to find any Republican leadership that's willing to really invest much of anything into that, whereas Democrats uh, have been fairly good and reliable on the drug war issue Republicans have been extremely timid on any of their own issues, whether it's Obamacare, gun control, or anything else. Uh, so it looks like there's still a long way to go with that. Uh, and one issue that this has become kind of a major deal is uh, regarding gun rights. Um, the state of Missouri passed a nullification law, uh, basically nullifying all federal gun regulation um, that has been uh, currently uh, struck down by a lower federal court. Uh, in uh, recent months, the Supreme Court refused to take up Missouri um, uh, trying to throw out that ruling. So I think there's, there's going to be some more uh, court action on that going forward. Uh, but gun rights has been kind of one of those areas where conservatives have set to kind of borrow from. I think that's the one issue where there has been, I think, the most political interest in sort of borrowing from the left's success uh, when it comes to you know, marijuana laws and the like. Um, and obviously, that's that's a, a big cultural issue. Of it's a, it's a very easy, you know, kind of one of the easiest um, areas to go radical within a political campaign, a lot more so than other um, areas that require a little bit more explanation. 
um, for certain certain voter uh, groups there. Um, and so I think that's going to be continuing a battle, particularly if we see any further uh, action you know, on gun control in the future, which, you know, given uh, uh, you know, Trump's willingness to you know, ban bump stocks and the like, I don't know if that's going to be something that is going to be off, off the table, regardless of the outcomes of 2024 election. Um, but, you know, it is interesting. It is good to see that that nullification muscle um, still being at least entertained by some state legislators. And I think that that's one that will continue to get some momentum. And of course, another aspect to this, um, which is less relied upon the non-commandeering doctrine aspect of kind of pure nullification, um, but rather state attorney generals and, and state governments um, trying to rein in various administrative state excesses from the federal governments uh, can be seen in efforts dealing with you know, environmental controls and, and wetland regulation alike, um, you know, trying, uh, there's going to be a very important Supreme Court case um, next year that seeks to uh, unravel or do, or, or kind of take a, a major step back from the Chevron deference doctrine that gave a tremendous amount of, of rule writing powers to the agencies um, expanding their, their powers well outside of the confines of the actual written legislation. Um, and that aspect is going to, if, should that, should the expected um, ruling there, there, given the current makeup of the court, um, you know, while we, you know, we've had conservative, you know, quote unquote, courts in the past, the makeup of this court, uh, particularly with uh, Gorsuch, um, in particular, is one that seems to be particularly um, amenable to questioning some of the fundamental administrative state aspects of the federal government. And so should that ruling, which I believe deals with a fishery issue, um, should that ruling go the way that court watchers expect it to go, that will open up the table to a variety of different state uh, 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 lawsuits over environmental regulation, uh, some of which might do with land itself, some of it might have to deal with uh, kind of emission standards and things like that. And so that is something where, again, not in a a pure non-commandeering doctrine, you know, you can't tell us how to enforce our law dynamic, but rather getting into the, the lawfare dynamic of federalism, that could open up a whole new battlefield on reining in some of these steps, and that's going to require, um, while I, I don't expect the feds to kind of just go quietly in the night should they get an unfavorable ruling, if that allows for serious agitation from state attorney generals, again, following the model like we've seen with um, um, you know, we, we, we've seen, you know, Ken Paxson in Texas taking on big, you know, big, big pharma and various lawsuits with similar dynamic with uh, the Missouri case uh, dealing with the uh, federal government's involvement with censorship during uh, COVID on social media platforms and the like, right? So, you know, some of these state attorney general's offices want to take a more aggressive stand, um, you know, viewing the federal government as a hostile actor and, and trying to rein in some of these things, I think that you know, we have a, a lot of opportunities, uh, whether it's from the attorney general itself or whether it's the state legislature basically forcing the state attorney's office to take an aggressive stand there. Um, you know, we could be seeing in the next couple of years, should some of these court cases go the right way, a much more favorable environment for uh, kind of a legal nullification from a lot of longstanding federal rules, regulations, and, and you know, general sinister activities. Well, and of course, uh, if you attempt any sorts of these types of nullification measures, uh, whether it's just refusing to assist the feds uh, or actively trying to get in the way 
um, you're going to get sued. I mean, the feds, they're not going to want to put up with it. So, of course, you're going to end up in federal court uh, in, money, in many of these cases. It seems the only real surefire way that it ever works is when uh, nullification just requires that you do nothing. Um, because in those cases, the state can just simply sit on its hands and refuse to enforce something uh, or uh, be real, uh, <laughs> real slow about enforcing things. And so a lot of it comes down to uh, not just how the law is written, but uh, to how much the locals believe in helping the federal government um, carry out its, uh, its usually unconstitutional regulatory laws. And so there are, there are issues that, uh, that um, some states, I think, will be able to get on board with some, some issues where it requires that you do more. That's going to be harder to nullify. And so it, isn't, it is going to vary on which issue we're talking about, um, whether we're talking about, hey, we're just going to not enforce this particular law or uh, we're going to actually uh, enforce, say, laws against abortion in this case. Now, of course, the federal law had been overturned on that. And had it not been, it would have been very difficult to do some sort of nullification uh, there because the feds just would have stepped in and done enforcement uh, on their own. So there's a lot of gray area that's going to occur when you try and do any sort of nullification. You're going to get sued. The feds are going to try and uh, make lessons of some people. So you're just going to be need to be prepared for that. The only alternative, though, is to just go along with everything the feds want and to, sh and to have no sort of resistance whatsoever uh, at the state level. And then, of course, the feds always win. Um, and uh, they're going to uh, they're going to bank on that going forward. Um, so I think with that, we've uh, we've covered everything. I think we've uh, uh, looked at some of these issues, and and certainly interested in any new ideas that any of the states have about nullification or any of those issues, uh, because sometimes some of these legislators come up with some pretty creative ideas. So we'll keep an eye out on those uh, going forward. Um, but uh, certainly, I hope uh, some states uh, are thinking about ways that they can uh, really try and get in the way of the feds and uh, really maybe try and assert some of uh, the freedoms that they were originally supposed to have within a federalist system. But uh, in the last 100, 150 years, have really just given up uh, as a matter of America first, unity, supporting the president, all that, so all those reasons that that states have basically given up um, on uh, actual balance of power in the Constitution and all of that, independence, freedom, you know, all that stuff that, that's basically the opposite of uh, helping the central government do things. Um, so thank you for listening to this episode of Radio Rothbard. Uh, we will be back next week as uh, we uh, approach the end of the year. And so we will see you next time.